and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 237th episode, our guest is Dr. Jonathan M. DiPiero. Jonathan M. DiPiero, Ph.D., is an associate professor of psychiatry at the Eichen School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the associate director of Mount Sinai's Center for Stress, Resilience, and Personal Growth. He is a clinical psychologist as well as an expert in psychological resilience and the treatment of trauma-related mental health conditions. The new edition of the book he co-authored, Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges, was published in September by Cambridge University Press. And now, on to the show. So my name is Dr. Jonathan DiPiro. I'm an associate professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the associate director of Mount Sinai's Center for Stress, Resilience, and Personal Growth. Yes, um, and please uh, tell me about this book. I, I'm about a third of the way through it so far, and it's so far very interesting. And uh, this is the uh, this is the third edition, right? That's correct. So the our book, Resilience: The Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges, is really about the factors that help people be resilient through difficult times, challenges in life that are really big, like a life life threatening situation or smaller, uh, like the everyday stressors of being a human being these days. And we've, through our research, through our interviews with folks who've been through extraordinary situations, found that there are 10 factors that support resilience. And these include optimism, facing fears, physical exercise, thinking flexibly, managing your emotions, and having a sense of meaning and purpose, connecting to maybe spirituality or religion in your life. And these factors um, really have been validated through the recent times of the COVID-19 pandemic and the research that we've done uh, and the, the experiences of our own healthcare workers at Mount Sinai who exemplified all of those characteristics. Right. Um... Going back to the impetus for this subject to write the book, uh, why why was this important for you to be a part of this? And I know each of there's three co-authors, um, and I'm sure you all had your own reasons for for being interested in this. But what was what was your uh, focus? Where did that come from? So my my impetus for being part of this is that when the COVID nineteen pandemic started in early 2020. I was working at Mount Sinai at our World Trade Center health program, where we take care of 9-11 first responders, some of whom have PTSD, some of whom have depression from the work that they did and the um, horrible things that they might've seen at the site um, at Ground Zero. And um, because of that work, I was asked to think about what a center might look like to support our own healthcare workers modeled on our experience with supporting our 9-11 first responders, because there was a clear need for more supports during the pandemic for the resilience and mental health of our healthcare workers. So that's really how I got into it because I was doing uh, related work with 9-11 responders. I was doing a lot of research about their mental health needs and understanding what helps them continue to be resilient and recover and grow from their experiences. And so that was really leveraged um, to begin to start the center with colleagues who've also had similar experiences with different groups who've had a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. But um, when you started researching this topic, what 
what surprised you the most? I mean, what, what were kind of things that you were like, wow, I, I didn't think about it that way before I started writing this. So one of the things that surprised me the most, just even over the years of understanding resilience is that it's sometimes easy to say, okay, you have a group of people that have had a traumatic experience and of that, some percentage develop PTSD. And the rest of the folks, those folks are resilient because they had the exposure and they didn't develop mental health symptoms or PTSD. Um, but that's very limiting. So I think through this work, through the interviews with folks uh, who've been through difficult experiences and through doing related research, I really understood that we see resilience in the process of how people recover from conditions like depression and anxiety and PTSD and the suffering related to some of those conditions and resilience can often go hand in hand. For example, we know that people with moderate PTSD symptoms, moderate distress related to trauma actually have the largest amount of post-traumatic growth. They're most able to identify positive ways in which their life has changed uh, as a result of the trauma. So it's not that resilience and distress are polar opposites. They go hand in hand. And that was eye-opening to me. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, one of the interesting chapters right at the beginning of the book is about optimism. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, because uh, not all of us, I don't know if you know this, are like uh, necessarily uh, geared towards optimism. I feel like I'm definitely, if I let myself, I'm probably a natural pessimist, I would say. I'm a journalist, so I mean, that makes sense. But um, I don't feel like I'm, you know, necessarily biased towards that. So, uh, but I see the utility in, in developing optimism and, and a healthy sense of uh, the future. And, and what can you do for people that, or say to people that are like me and maybe not, you know, not as optimistic naturally, or it's not our default setting necessarily to be optimistic, I guess. Yeah, I would say that, that it's a muscle that can be trained. And the goal of that training is not to see the world as rosy or overly positive, but to see the world more realistically and helpfully. So people who are pessimistic sometimes feel and think that their problems are gonna last forever and that the things that they're going through right now affect every part of their life. And they, in that way, kind of blow things out of proportion. And someone who's an optimist can see problems as limited in time and limited in how many things in their life that those issues impact. Uh, so they kind of have practiced reframing what they're going through and seeing it through a narrow lens rather than through a really broad catastrophic lens. Yeah. That's definitely a, a good good way to think about it. Um, one section in the optimism part that I uh, thought was very interesting was uh, this idea of uh, false, po uh, excuse me, false optimism. Um, and uh, I was talking with this about this with my wife, and uh, she called it toxic positivity, which I thought was a good way to describe it. But um, talk a little bit about that and how maybe that isn't the best way to go about it. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I believe I mentioned the term toxic positivity in the book. I'm coming at someone who's going through something challenging and 
saying, just look on the bright side, everything's going to be okay. Um, just think about all the ways that you'll grow as a result of the experience immediately day one is never helpful. Uh, you have to acknowledge the challenges that people face. You have to acknowledge the suffering that an experience conveys. Should you stay with that suffering and see it as part of your identity for the rest of your life? That's probably not so helpful, but you have to acknowledge the suffering and think about things that you can control in the situation, accept the things that you can't control and begin to think about how you move forward to the next minute, hour, and the next day. Um, but showering someone with just positive notions is really problematic because it invalidates their experience. It invalidates the suffering that they're going through and no one likes to feel invalidated. Right, definitely. Um, now, I looked at your list of, of 10 things uh, that you mentioned and uh, number one is face your fears. And uh, that seems unpleasant. <laughs> I don't like doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one does really, maybe except like uh, uh, extreme athletes. But what we know from all of the work that we've done over the past four or five decades in understanding fear is that only through facing your fears can you truly challenge them. Can you truly master the fear, begin to tolerate the fear? You have to lean into it, lean into the hard thing in order for it to get easier with time. The fears and anxieties that you have, phobias, for example, when people are afraid of specific things, they actually don't tend to get better on their own. They can get worse with time because the more we leave them unchallenged, the more elaborate stories our brain can make up about how horrific the thing is. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So we know that sometimes people after a car accident, for example, might avoid driving in a car, or they might even overshoot and avoid going on public transportation of any kind. They might decide that it's safest to stay in the house. But what that's reinforcing in their minds and in their bodies is that the world is unsafe. And that same traumatic thing can happen again, or that's likely to happen again. And through avoiding, they're just preventing that overwhelming anxiety. The downside is they never challenge themselves to see that the world is generally safe, that they can tolerate that fear, and then they can get back up on the horse and get out in the world. Um, so avoidance is a cornerstone of phobias, specific fears of things like flying on an airplane or public speaking, and a cornerstone, avoidance is a cornerstone of post-traumatic stress disorder. And so treatments for those conditions in particular gradually expose the, the individual to the thing that they're afraid of uh, through bits and pieces. So you can even imagine doing this on your own. If you're afraid of public speaking, you might write out a script of what you're gonna say as a first step. You might practice it in front of the mirror as a second step, and then in front of a couple of loved ones, and then a little bit, bit of a bigger audience, and then the, the real deal presentation. You gradually challenge the fear and you learn that that anxiety doesn't kill you. It may, might make you sweat for a little while, especially the first couple of times you practice, but that, oh, that fear does not kill you and you can tolerate it with time. And ultimately you can do the thing that you think you thought that you were never capable of doing at all or again. Mm. Yeah. I just think though that there is probably a biological reason that we're like predisposed to 
look for like threats. You know, I mean, I, I bet every person in the generations before us who made it to, you know, uh, birthing age uh, was probably rightly afraid of certain things. And those are the people that <laughs> got to carry their genes on, you know, so uh, I think the, the the wary among us have have kept it kept it going all low these many years. <laughs> right. You have a fair point, right? That the human brain, in some ways, it has been evolved to detect threats. But here's the problem. There aren't actually life-threatening threats around every corner. Uh, public speech is not a life-threatening situation, but sometimes our bodies react as if it is. It's not actually going to kill you. A bear in the woods is the typical example that that might kill you. And that's what people are evolutionarily trained to detect and be wary of. But lots of everyday situations that people face are not the life threat that your body makes it to be. Your body has a reaction in many situations as if those situations are posing an immediate danger threat to your own physical life. And it's kind of fooling you. Your own bodily reactions are fooling you into thinking that you're under threat when you're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that same biological architecture can go awry and really overshoot. But when I, 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 I'm thinking also of things that you should actually be afraid of. Like I, I have not come to terms with death really you know like i'm 40 years old i hope i live a lot longer there's other people my age and younger that haven't lived this long and and people not that much older than me that that die and i'm definitely not ready to, that i don't feel ready to face that fear necessarily uh i mean that's that's not a that's not an abstract thing so uh yeah talk i mean i know you talk about that in the book but yeah if you could just talk talk a little bit about things that maybe you should be <laughs> rightly concerned about. Right. And I think a, a, that's a fair point. A, a common fear is the fear of death, in part because depending on your belief system, there, there are varying thoughts about what happens after you die. Uh, for those of those listeners that might not have uh, a religious belief system, there there's a question of, okay, so what really happens? Do I just cease to be? Is it going to hurt? Am I going to be with loved ones? Am I going to continue on in some way? Um, and that mystery, that unknown conveys, I think, a lot of the fear and anxiety. And what, it, what I was thinking about as you were talking is there's kind of an expression, I can't remember the source, where it says some people are so afraid of dying that they forget to live. Mm. And I'm really thinking about those folks that are worried out of control about situations thinking that they can't stomach them or can't survive them and they stay indoors they don't do the thing that they're afraid of and they prevent themselves from having an experience that could actually be a growth experience so i'm thinking about people who are afraid of traveling for example they're afraid of the plane crashing so they don't take the trip and then they're on their deathbed thinking, oh, I really should have taken that trip when they're no longer able to. Um, so I think that there certainly there are many ways to think about that fear and uncertainty. But I also caution people to let that govern the decisions they make on a daily basis. Now, certainly there are plenty of things that we 
don't do because they're dangerous. We don't run out into traffic because we could rightly get killed. But things like taking a trip and or avoiding taking a trip because you're afraid of a plane crashing, it doesn't actually line up with the facts. It's actually more dangerous to drive in a car than to fly in a plane. Yet more people are afraid of public uh, flying on airplanes than driving in a car. Um, I also want to point out, uh, so readers of the book will see a firsthand account from our colleague and co-author, Steve Southwick, who was a world expert in trauma and resilience. The last chapter is devoted to him uh, and it's his account in part of his facing death head on. As we were writing the book, this third edition, he was dying of cancer. He was dying of metastatic prostate cancer that he had been fighting for over five years. And he wrote in the ICU um, and while he was going through chemotherapy, painful surgical procedures about how he was trying to use the very resilience factors that he studied over the course of his life to face death. And let me just tell you one example of how he did this, which I thought was incredibly beautiful. He leaned into it. And in his last days, when he was in the hospital, not knowing if he was going to survive another couple of days and in agonizing pain, he told literally everybody that came into his hospital room that he loved them and he appreciated them and he was grateful for them. So not just his surgeon, not just his physician, and the folks that were cleaning the room, bringing him his food, family members, friends, he showered them with love and affection. He did not withdraw. He leaned into his relationships. And I think this, this teaches a valuable lesson. You know, certainly as people are confronting death, they can often lose track of what's most meaningful to them in their lives. And Steve is a shining example of someone who didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you you mentioned that for sure. Um, you also mentioned something about uh, religion or spirituality, and and I think if that is something that you genuinely have in your life, I think that can be very valuable, and and it it I would imagine be very nice to just throw all that on that. I'm not like I, I can see wonder in the world, and and like when my children ask me if magic exists, I'm like, well, you're here. And I, I understand <laughs> technically how that happened, but I don't at all understand how your mother and I made you with our bodies. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, you, you have an excellent point. And I make a very strong distinction between spirituality and religion. So spirituality, broadly speaking, is connecting to a sense of something greater than yourself. And religion is one way that a lot of people do that through formal practices like prayer, going to a religious service, having a faith community, having a set of practices and beliefs and customs, religious laws. So there can be a difference between the two. Faith, um, or rather spirituality, can be accomplished or connected to through things like meditation or yoga, through the sense of awe that you were just describing, looking at your children and saying, I don't know how we did this. And, and what you're describing is increasingly what a lot of Americans, um, folks in the US experience, where they say, no, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Um, what we do know, though, is that across the entire world, 80% of people identify with an organized religion of some kind. And I'm not pushing that on folks. In fact, 
we know from our interviews with Vietnam War POWs that those POWs who are looking at their buddies who are very religious and then tried to do the practices themselves and tried to do the prayer and the church services that were being held, it didn't work. It didn't work for them if it wasn't their custom to begin with, if it wasn't their tradition. So just essentially faking it didn't work. So that's what I'm, I'm not recommending that, just trying to pick up religion out of the blue. But what I am asking people to think about is some way of connecting to something greater. You might get that sense of awe from walking in the woods. I, I give a corny example that you know, part of our hospital was designed by the architect I.M. Pei, and it's a huge atrium. And when I walk into the hospital, uh, our Mount Sinai hospital, especially in the early morning hours when nobody else is there quite yet, maybe six o'clock, we've been there a few times at six, and I look up, it, I have that sense of awe because you can see uh, the parts of the different floors of the hospital and you kind of wonder well, what's actually going on here. Look at all the wonderful things that could be happening. Um, and I have the sense of awe just in that space. And some people have that sense of awe um, similarly. And I, I think we should look to finding that ordinary magic is, is an expression that Bacali uses, that ordinary magic in life. Mm. Yeah, just before we started talking, I was uh, walking outside uh, and I was I looked up and, and the moon is just huge. Like it was like, wow, it's full moon. Bang. Like it was like and a cloud like passed in front of it like a Hank Williams song. It was like amazing. So <laughs> it was. Uh, yeah. But I, I try I was going to take a, a picture on my cell phone, but I knew it would never come out as well as it was looking you know, to the naked eye. Um but yeah, those those little moments for sure. Yeah, um, I've heard that also. We were my wife were my wife and I were talking, and she was saying that uh, the opposite of like a trigger, I guess, how people talk about triggers, the opposite would be a glimmer. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Something that sparks uh, joy as opposed to uh, you know maybe like <laughs> activates a past trauma or something. Um, but. Yeah. So like I mentioned, uh, we are parents, we have four kids and, um, you know, I'm trying to teach my kids about resilience. Even before I started reading this book, it's definitely a value that I want them to have. Um, what would you say to parents, especially about how to cultivate this quality in their children? So I should say transparently that I don't have children myself. I actually come from a large family. I'm the oldest of seven. Oh, I have wow. five brothers and a sister. Wow. Uh, the sister, my sister is the youngest. Okay. Um, but I take my cues from my colleague and co-author, Dr. Dennis Charney, who is the dean of our medical school, who has been a, a close mentor to me. He has children. And one of the things that he has made a point of doing with his children, who are now all adults who have careers, is to expose them to challenging situations. And what I don't, what I mean there is not traumas, but things like team sports, things like going on nature hikes when they're able to do so, pushing them a little bit to uh, understand that challenges can be overcome, that hard things do happen in life and that there are models for understanding how to address them. There are kind of laboratories that we can expose our kids to in things like sports um, or certain kinds of trips or hobbies, like activities like chess, right? Where there's the possibility of failure and you have to tolerate that failure. 
And I think having that experience of tolerating emotions, working together, communicating effectively, mm-hmm. that tough things happen and that you, you can survive them by leaning into the difficult things. You know, there is a whole bunch of parenting philosophies, but I would just caution parents about being too careful about what you expose your children to, especially with your support right alongside them, right? You know, people do die. Difficult things do happen in life. If the child knows that they have a parent who is right alongside them as they're as it's happening, talking them through it, being there to pick them up off the ground and dust them off and push them back into the game, then they do better. Then they build up that muscle of resilience of being able to understand some realities of life, to be able to understand that you can recover from failure, that it's not devastating, um, and that you do have to, you know, delay gratification sometimes. You can't always get what you want right away. Mm. Yeah. Um, One thing that I do notice when I'm like, man, I wish they could be more resilient is when we have kind of a routine for our days, you know, uh, things start happen at a certain time, but when things happen, have to happen at a different time for whatever reason, or this, you know, schedule gets moved around. That's always the, uh, one of the biggest sticking points is that, uh, children like routines and having that, you know, anything change that can, can be challenging. Uh, if if they're used to one thing and you know something else happens for whatever reason, um, I think you even have a section about uh, flexibility. So yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about as you're talking. It's true, children like routines, and at some point, everyone has to learn or would benefit from learning to be flexible, to mixing it up, to understanding that things aren't always going to work according to schedule that we need to adapt on the fly. I, just as a quick example, I was interviewing a former Navy SEAL uh, commander who was actually in charge of the Captain Phillips rescue mission, Uh, an amazing guy. And he, right before the the interview started, we were just chit-chatting and he said that he had just been to the gym and as he was leaving the gym, he was looking for his car keys and he scoured the entire gym looking for his car keys um, and he couldn't find them. So he went to his car and underneath the, the wheel of the front of his car, he put an extra backup key and he had it just in case. And he used that to get home. He was thinking, already thinking ahead before the emergency situation happened. How do I get out of it? What, what are my backup choices? What's my plan B, C, D? And in fact, that's like an integral part of Navy SEAL training, right? They have to learn to be flexible because things aren't always going to go according to plan. And that's true of life too. Life isn't a Navy SEAL mission, but things get thrown your way and you ha- you would really benefit from having some tools in your toolbox to being able to think on the fly, to pivot, um, to reframe the challenges, think about the challenges that you're facing in a way that's more helpful maybe or more realistic and to lean on supports. So yeah, absolutely. Flexibility is a big part of resilience, not the only part, but a huge part. And I think we can instill this in children. Um, and I've seen many examples through role models of how it's done. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I mean, I don't want to give away your entire book. It's a, it's a very interesting subject. Uh, but is there anything else we didn't talk about the 
book or anything else on this subject that that people could take with them and, and find useful that we haven't already talked about here? Yes, uh, I think so. I think one of the things that I would say is the most important, one of the most important factors in the book is social support. And we know through many, many, many research studies and many conversations with people who've been through trauma that having somebody in their corner, having even just one person, it could be a mentor, a teacher, a friend, a kind doctor, um, having one person in their corner helped them immensely during difficult times. So it's extremely important to invest time now, not wait, but invest time now in social relationships, in everyday conversations. So that means saying hello to the person at the front desk of your building, the person who gives you your coffee in the morning, learning their names, having superficial relationships like that, that are just seconds long, but also investing time ahead of time in deeper relationships. And just to be transparent, I know for me, if I don't schedule time to talk to some of my family members, it doesn't happen for weeks. And then I feel really guilty, but I need to put it in my calendar and make a habit and routine of it because I know those are the very relationships that I need myself to get through difficult times. And also that they need to get through their own difficult times. So social support is a two-sided coin. It's both about getting support from someone else, which is, has the most research behind it, but it's also about giving support, being altruistic, touching base of somebody. Mm-hmm. I recently read a research study that showed that checking in with a friend randomly throughout the day is very much appreciated by that person. So just randomly send, sending a message to somebody you know saying, hey, haven't talked to you in a while, how you doing? I actually do that quite a lot. Uh, Turns out that's really appreciated. And that means a lot to the receiver. So giving and getting support is exceptionally important and cannot be overstated how important it is. Being altruistic is really important. By giving of yourself, by giving of your time, it blows back on you in very positive ways. Great. Excellent. Well, yeah, I, I definitely recommend the book. I'm, I'm totally going to finish it. It's, it's very interesting. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, one, we're, uh, getting down to the last couple minutes here. I see, um, one question that I always ask here at the end though, is, uh, what music have you been listening to lately? Hmm. That's a really good question. So I like Billy Joel and Elton John. I oh, grew wow. up with that music, the classics. Yeah. And I can't stop listening to it. Great. I, I particularly like the song Vienna by Billy Joel. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a great reminder to slow down Mm. especially when I when I find myself taking on too much I end the day by listening to Vienna (laughs) nice Uh, I'm informed by my mom that I went to an Elton John concert in utero Um, so I have a long history with Elton John Um, (laughs) but uh, I I play guitar as does my six-year-old daughter Emerald and uh, we play uh, Crocodile Rock together. Hmm. That's one of our favorites. That's such a fun song. Oh, I know. Um, and then, yeah, I, who doesn't love Billy Joel, right? So, <laughs> uh, speaking of which, though, did you see that uh, Fallout Boy recorded a uh, updated version of "We Didn't Start the Fire"? No, 
but I'm definitely going to need to check that out as soon as right, they well, get off the uh, call. Well, let's, let's pump the brakes here. It, it, <laughs> it is not up to the standards of the original, in my opinion. I had a history teacher once who taught an entire like eight week semester long, half semester long thing on like that song breaking down post-World War II American history. And it was in chronological order and it all like, you know, made sense when you followed it from one end to the, to the other. This is just, they're just shouting out things that had happened in the last 30 years in no particular <laughs> order, just whatever ways the words fit <laughs> best. I don't know. Like I, I was disappointed because I was like, oh, okay, maybe they'll do a uh, extension. Okay. This is great. And then it's like, whoa, what is going on? We're jumping all over the place here. So they they updated it to modern events. Yes, exactly. And and but they didn't do it chronologically is my point. So it's like if they if they had just done it continued it from the date of release of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire to present I would be like, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's all, that's could, also one of my it. one of my favorite songs. It's <laughs> Sometimes it's a reminder to me as a clinical psychologist that I might not be able to fix problems that mm -hmm. the world faces, but my goal should maybe just be to not make them worse. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, oh, <laughs> have you seen the movie uh, Step Brothers? Yes. Okay, yeah, you know what I'm talking about then with the Billy Joel cover band. <laughs> I love that scene. <laughs> Classic comedy movies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Doo-wop doo Joel sucks. Shut up. <laughs> I like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan I like of Elf that. myself. I'm an Elf Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's our favorite <laughs> Christmas movie. We love that one. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, great, great. Hey, uh, well, I'd love to talk to you again sometime if you'd be willing to come back and uh, yeah, I'm sure we'd have a lot more to talk about. So. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me on and I encourage folks to check out the book where there's a lot of helpful nuggets. I agree for sure. Well, uh, thanks again and have a great night. Take care.